0: Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the The primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vayakhel, He Assembled. The address is Shemot, Exodus 35, verse 1, through chapter 38, verse 20. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben-Lyman. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications, Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary was updated on March 7th of 2006. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu Mikol haamim, venatan lanu et Torah to. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha HaTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, uh, I hope you have been keeping up with the Torah portion reading, um, because if you have, then for this particular Torah portion, you'll notice that as you start reading, that um, the information should look familiar to you. And the reason why is because our parasha starts out with some familiar instructions. Actually, what we're reading this time is about the contribution, the trumah. Um, that we have read about earlier. In fact, the contribution that we're going to read about in this particular um, chapter today, chapter 35, uh, actually verses 4 through 29, is a repeat of the instructions of Exodus chapter 25. So 10 chapters ago, we read nearly identical information. However, the difference this time is we learn that the contribution, the truma, was so great that Moshe actually had to instruct the people to stop uh to stop giving. Um, that's in chapter thirty six, verses three through seven. In other words, um, they gave more than enough, and that's pretty good. Also the major difference between the two accounts is that the former former um instructions, the former narrative, which covered Parashot Tuma, Tetzaveh, and Kitisa, basically um the last three Tor portions uh, up to this one, they uh, detailed the instructions, as can be observed by the fact that the verb tenses were in the future. If you remember, take this contribution, and here's how you're going to build the Mishkan. Whereas the latter, in essence our current tour portion, as well as the final portion that we're going to get to coming up on a, in a moment, um, is uh let's see, let me look here real quick. Yeah, Parashat um Pukude that that's also which is accounts um, that's also um the work of the Mishkan but it shows that the work was completed. It shows them building and, and, and actually completing the work that had begun um in the previous partial. So, really, what I'm trying to say is an, uh, as a broad overview from Exodus chapter 25 through the end of Exodus, basically, from Exodus chapter 25 all the way through Exodus chapter 40, the Mishkan is the central feature. The tabernacle is the central feature. Now, with that view in mind, you might recognize, as I have recognized, that it's unfortunate that the awful golden calf incident in Exodus chapter uh, 31, or 32, I'm sorry, it's unfortunate that the whole golden calf incident had to even take place. In fact, it really marred the historical narrative that was going along so beautifully. God had um, instructed the people to give. The people had a heart to give. They wanted the tabernacle built they contributed to the building of it um and then they set out to put it together and then the golden calf thing happened so it's it's really a shame that the that um we even have to read about that at all moreover we learned last week that the temptation to sin you know and and of course let's be honest we're all going to be tempted from time to time. But the temptation to sin is never so great that we cannot escape. God does not put us in impossible situations. Also, despite the fact that 25,000 people died as a result of the punishment, isn't it fantastic, let's be positive, isn't it fantastic to know that the remaining people gave so abundantly that Moshe had to tell them to stop giving. So, um... I mean, the, the story has a good ending in that sense. They did get the tabernacle built, and they did, in fact, um, enter into a place where they could uh, have God's presence near them, because as we are going to find out in the book of Aikra, Leviticus, uh, God's presence does move in, as it were, to his new home. So with the sin and its punishment behind them, the people were now ready to get busy with the task at hand, that is, building uh, Adonai a mishkan, a tabernacle. The instructions have been given, the contribution has been taken, and now the people are ready to put it together. Moshe had graciously interceded for the people during the golden calf incident, and the Lord, in fact, restrained himself from wiping them out completely. In fact... If God had wiped them out, then he would be violating his promise that he made to Abraham. And that's exactly what Moshe reminded Hashem of when his anger flared up against uh, his people. However, from this point on, the people would learn to operate under the divine grace and provision of Hashem as performed through the sacrificial system with this Levitical priesthood. They cannot simply expect that Moshe is going to step in and bail them out of hot water every time they get themselves into trouble. God is going to provide a way for them to meet with him on a more individual basis, uh, yet the priests are going to be the go-betweens. Um, Moshe is not going to be running the entire show. Uh, The high priest is going to be inaugurated, the priests are going to be inaugurated, uh, and then we're going to see that the people are going to be able to approach Hashem through the priests, rather than using Moshe as the single leader for everything. Um... So for this next section of our commentary, we're going to talk about the tabernacle system and the sacrifices as a kind of an introduction to the book of Leviticus. Uh, Rather than focusing on the building materials and and things like that, like many other commentaries do, I'd like to give instead the students a, a preview of the book of Leviticus. So this next section is entitled Types and Shadows. The entire Levitical priesthood that we're going to be reading about in Leviticus and its order of things actually served to point the way to the ultimate sacrifice that we know would take place in Messiah Yeshua. So we know that this um, this this important histo- uh, uh, spiritual aspect, which of course is spiritual 2020, I guess hindsight is always 2020. Um, we know that this is where the Levitical priesthood is pointing to, but we still have to do a study on the Levitical system because. I can tell you what, there is a great deficiency within Christianity as far as um, understanding God's system of, how shall I put it, God's system of service to God. I think we sometimes get the idea that we can just go out, live our lives the way we want and then go and confess to God all of our sins and God will just wipe all our sins away and forgive us and then we can go back out, live like the devil come back and ask for forgiveness again and God will forgive us and then we can go back out live like the devil, ask for forgiveness and on and on and on and there's a cycle that we have somewhat fallen into, we in the western world, we in the western church and that's not the lesson that was to be um, passed down to the people as we read through the Levitical system and so it's important for us to get a grasp and understanding of the lifestyle that God was trying to convey to his people. Don't live like the devil and then come and ask me for forgiveness. I'm not obligated to forgive you on that basis. If you're just going to live like the world and you're not interested in serving me and surrendering your life to me, then I'm going to show you what the consequences of such a lifestyle will uh, eventually entail. And so God introduced the system of reward and the system of cursing, blessing and cursing. And in this blessing and cursing, blessing is only given to those who willingly submit themselves to God's ways, whereas curses are reserved for the people who willingly defy God. And we don't want to be in that position. Moreover, um... As the budding young nation learned to walk in their new calendar, their new um, days of appointment, their days of meeting with God, Hashem's calendar, they would have the opportunity, as it were, to learn about the great many aspects of the otherwise unfathomable grace and mercy of their husband. You see, in singling out just the feast days as an example here for our study, we have noted that the word for appointed time is mo'ed, And interestingly, I've heard it somewhere. I I, I don't know where I heard it. uh, Maybe from my Israeli friend of whom I um, learned my Hebrew about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, This word moed actually conveys a sense of a dress rehearsal. Um, Maybe later on in the study I may look it up and see uh, as we get closer to uh, the Moedim themselves. I may look up that Hebrew word Moed and see if there's a nuance there that suggests a uh, um, dress rehearsal. But for now, I'll just take my word for it. So what we have then is in the Moed, the appointed time, we have a dress rehearsal. And if you remember, dress rehearsals re- usually occur before an actual play. You've heard the old Adam, uh, the old um, adage, um, practice makes perfect. Well, in a sense, that's what God was um, instructing His people to do practice every time you go through the feasts you're practicing for something that's going to hit the scene historically that will be the reality of the practice the dress rehearsal will become the real deal someday and of course what we're talking about is that the mikra e kodesh the holy convocations um, they were to act as dress rehearsals for his children now You might be asking, what are they dress rehearsals of? Some of you have figured this out, but for those that you don't know, here's what I have to say. The feasts of the Lord, the feasts of Adonai, are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. That's right. Messianic redemption. The feasts are, in fact, a dress rehearsal of the life and times of Yeshua, the Messiah. Our Lord Yeshua has literally and prophetically fulfilled the first four of the seven feasts that are mentioned in Leviticus 23, uh, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. They were all fulfilled literally on the days that God told Israel to meet with them. Yeshua stepped into the fullness of those festivals with his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. His um his ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit. The four festivals that I just uh, talked about um, are wrapped around and centered in um, those events in the Messiah's life. Likewise, it's my belief that the Torah teaches that literally and prophetically Yeshua will fulfill the final three at his soon-to-be second arrival. Okay, so we've got the final three. We've got Yom Tovah, which is uh, the day of um, the uh, day of trumpets, um, Rosh Hashanah is what it's called on your calendar, and then we've got um, Yom Kippur, uh, the day of atonement, and then after that we've got um, Sukkot, which is the festival of ingathering or Tabernacles, as it's uh, called sometimes. So these three festivals remain to be fulfilled literally by our Lord and I believe that he will fulfill them right on time just like he did the first four in other words what I'm trying to tell you is hint 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 I believe that Yeshua is going to fulfill these festivals on the same days that they are given in the biblical calendar of Leviticus 23 what is more if we consider the feasts on a micro level then by comparison the entire history of mankind would be a macro simply put the death of Messiah foreshadowed by the Yom Kippur ritual let me just single that one out speaks of Yeshua dying once for the sins of the world if you remember it was once a year and every year that they participated in it it happened over and over again so you know, it's been what um, 3,300 years or so since the giving of these uh, or the institution of these festivals with Israel 33, 3400 3, years so that's 33 or 3400 Yom Kippur's that have come and gone But even on the micro, on the smaller level, Yom Kippur happened once a year. Not once a week, not once a month, but once a year. And so it foreshadowed um, the once and for all sacrifice of Yeshua dying once for the entire sin of the world. In God's calendar then, Yom Kippur only occurs once. And Yeshua's ministry of coming and dying once was perfectly foreshadowed in the Yom Kippur dress rehearsal. Wouldn't you agree with me? Yeshua's ministry was perfectly anticipated if the seeker were looking through eyes of faith. And that's what we should be doing today as we examine and study the festivals. So, as the children of Abraham willingly and faithfully lived out, that is to say, they did not speak Um, spurn God's days, but rather they walked into them. As they lived out Hashem's yearly cycle of moedim. the Spirit of the Holy One graciously, I believe, opened their hearts to understand that as His treasured possession, they were responsible to actively pursue a genuine loving relationship with their husband. They were not simply meant to just go through the motions it was not just a social club people they were not just um called out of egypt so that they could form a a nice uh friendly community of of neighbors and and exchange recipes and show up at the town square and 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 talk about how their children are doing and then show up for church on shabbat and or synagogue you know of course i'm just being funny here but show up for church once a week and just you know chit chat that's not what God was um, putting his people together for he was putting within them the very seeds of, of, of the gospel of the good news of the Messiah who was to come into earth's um, history or to arrive on the scene at God's timing and, and who would actually provide atonement for anyone who would place their personal faith in the Son of God to come. So um, Israel was designed really from the word go to be teachers, a teaching nation. A nation that would teach the other nations. This was their call. This was their their mandate. This, was, this is Israel's um, commission as it were. It is this type of personal relationship that Hashem has desired from his children from the day from from the word go. And to this end, the surrounding nations, as I mentioned, might also see the goodness and the mercy of Adonai and seek to become one of his treasured possessions. That's right. As they looked at Israel, you can um, for those of you who want to kind of get a a a preview of this Thumb forward in your Torah to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and read how that Israel was designed to be more or less like a fishbowl nation, placed uh, strategically in a place in the Middle East where many nations would pass through them, and as they traveled and passed through Israel, they would catch a glimpse of Israel's God and Israel's ways, Um, and in doing so they would be drawn to Israel's God and want to walk into a personal relationship with the God of Israel. Today, our responsibilities to our holy God have not changed any more than he himself has changed. God is still in the business of of drawing people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He is still in the business of drawing all men unto himself. And to this end, Israel has not lost her mandate she may have lost her voc- her focus and her vision from time to time, uh, You know, falling in and out of idolatry and flirting with uh, uh, disobedience and things like that. But for the most part, God's plans have not changed. So let's pull this back down to earth and return it to our parashah, returning to the everyday functions of the tabernacle, as will be outlined in these next few parashot. We see that Hashem would also meet... With his people via his priestly go betweens, right? The priests were the mediators between God and men, and so as it were, the priests were also types and shadows of the Messiah to come. Now they were go betweens for very important reasons. Even the name, in fact, for the Mishkan, the Oel Moed, the Ohel Moed, um, literally means tent of appointment, Ohel tent Moed appointment. So, what kind of appointments? are we talking about here? Why is it called the Tent of Meeting? And what sort of meetings um, we're in view? Well, we're talking about an appointment with the maker of the universe. We're talking about an audience with God himself. The one who could redeem both body and soul. That's right. If you had an opportunity to meet with God, would you? And I'm not just talking about meeting with Him in your quiet time, or being able to send a prayer heavenward at any moment of the day. We can do that. But I'm talking about if you had a chance to meet with God on a more tangible level, like uh, the children of Israel were able to do back then, where we had a place where God's glory were, as it were, concentrated into a location here on earth, would you? Oh, you bet you would. And so you would think that the people of Israel would... um, would, would be very, very excited about being able to meet with their heavenly Abba. And I believe initially they were. But um, as we'll read forward into the period of the talk, the people quickly became sidetracked and um, sought after idolatrous relationships with other foreign gods, gods that they did not know, gods that their forefathers did not know. And eventually this led them astray. It's a shame. At any rate, this... Tabernacle that we're describing, this lifestyle, these um, these appointments and such. As we look back at them, and we realize that salvation um, uh, that we enjoy today, uh, that salvation uh, was afforded anyone who. Genuinely placed their trust and faith in God's word, or that is to say, in the word of God, and in the promises that God was making with them, uh, which of course are all centered in Messiah. They made out of no Messiah's name, but we do know that um, salvation was available to those in the Tanakh. Now, even though salvation was not automatically granted to the covenant participant, um, you know, in other words, it wasn't that they were automatically saved just because they were Israelites and because they were able to meet with God um, in this Mishkan. Um, Even though salvation was not automatically granted to them, you remember, the Torah could never save the individual. Forgiveness, which is what we're talking about right now, forgiveness was indeed genuine. Oh yes, I've heard some people say that, you know, The sacrifices really didn't afford them forgiveness. They had to look forward, the person, the participant of that day, had to actually have within their mind and their heart the objective person of Messiah if they wanted their sins forgiven. But I'm here to tell you that the sacrifices actually did their job. They did cleanse the outward. They did, in fact, perform, as it were, the function of taking the sin of the individual and moving it from the individual to the very throne of God, to where God would deal with it. That did... Happen. And let's read about that now. Sin was in fact dealt with. This next section is entitled Washing and Wiping the Sins Away. The animal sacrifices conveyed both a temporal and an eternal message to the participants. Of course, the difference depended on the genuine faith existent within the person bringing the sacrifice. We must understand that not everyone who brought a sacrifice to Hashem during the time period of the Tanakh had genuine faith in God. Some people were just going through the motions. God knew the difference. At any rate, the blood of bulls and goats is what we might call the shadow today, and Yeshua is in fact the type. So those who had genuine faith in Yeshua brought the animals with full assurance provided for them by, of course, the Holy Spirit within their spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, bearing witness with their spirit that they are, in fact, in a genuine covenant relationship with God. So, this um, sacrifice pointed towards an ultimate sacrifice in the future. And the Spirit gave them that assurance. It's for this reason that we... Through our 21st century view of the of the sacrifices, looking backwards, sometimes don't appreciate what the sacrifices themselves could do. Even though people didn't have the kind of faith in Yeshua that we have today, meaning they didn't have a they didn't know his name, and it wasn't an historical event that had already taken place. It was a looking forward to the cross, whereas now we look back, and and perhaps there was a there was a bit more of it shrouded in mystery because the 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 plan had not unfolded historically yet even though they had that assurance of something in the future, for some reason it gives us the impression today that the animal sacrifices were really worthless. In fact, that's the view I, f- I get from studying standard Christian um, commentaries on the sacrifices. They either fall into the assumption that the sacrifices were um, efficacious to the point that they saved the individual, or the studies go off in a direction you know completely opposite, 180 degrees, Rendering the sacrifices completely useless. And so let me talk a bit about that second ditch, rendering the sacrifices useless. Many times it is taught that the sacrifices really didn't do anything, and so we kind of look down our nose at the sacrifices. However, I believe that before we become so quick to look down on God's temporal shadows, let's look at what the sacrificial system of those days actually could accomplish. So allow Um, me to pull an example from the Tanakh to show you this in practice. Alright? We're going to single out Melech David, King David um, to illustrate this point for us. Alright? In Psalm chapter 32 and chapter 51 we see the heart of a man who genuinely experienced the forgiveness of Hashem. Yes, it's genuine forgiveness. It's not some temporary form of forgiveness. God did forgive him, and God actually did, um, as it were, take away his sins so that he did not have to live with a guilty conscience. Now, we know, again, it's because um, David trusted in the one that was promised in the Torah. David trusted in the prophet who was to come, uh, namely the Messiah. So David had a genuine relationship with God, and so his faith was was Yeshua centric, even though he didn't know Yeshua's name. As far as we know, he didn't know his his his, uh, his name, but he still had an objective faith that had laid hold of the one who was to come. So, in Psalm thirty two one, for example, he stated, David did. He stated that the man whose sin is covered is actually blessed. Um, in verse five, he clearly states that his acknowledgement of his sin brought about true forgiveness from. Hashem, and so because of unmerited favor of which he's describing, this man David could rejoice in the mercies of Hashem, uh, the same way that we rejoice in the unmerited favor of Hashem today. Read verses ten and eleven, you'll see exactly um, that point there. David knew the mercy and forgiveness of Hashem the same way that we know it, although he didn't know the name of his son Messiah. At least, uh, again, I don't. I don't know that we. Uh, know for sure that David knew his name, knew Messiah's name. But still, it was the same forgiveness. And it was not simply generic faith in God. It was faith in the word of the Lord as given through the mouth of his prophets, as um, foreshadowed in the sacrifices, and as foretold um, through... Uh, uh, the stories that he read, the times in which he would approach God, the Moedim, all of this led David to the conclusion that God would send someone who would actually uh, atone for David's sin. So the Messiah was known to David, uh, just his name wasn't known. Um, Psalm 51 was written after David had committed the gross sin with Bathsheba, with uh, uh, um the wife of Uriah, um, Bathsheba, I think is how it's pronounced in English, Bathsheba in Hebrew. She was the mother of Melech Shlomo, King Solomon. And in the passage of Psalm 51, we again see a man who, knowing the true goal of the Torah, that is to say salvation of his eternal soul through the promised one to come, this man sought the genuine forgiveness of his Maker. And this time I want to single out verses 16 through 19 um, to explain Um, This psalm explains to us readers, uh, well, I guess I'm not going to read the verses, but what I want to say for those listening to my podcast is this. Verses 16 through 19 explain um, to us readers that a heart given to genuine, trusting faithfulness, the very same heart required of us today, is what rendered the sacrifices of the Tanakh effective. Do you see how that works? Simply performing the rituals perfunctorily, Did not please our heavenly Abba. Read verse 16 and 17 again for yourself. Rather, as we're seeing in the case of David, it was a heart that was broken in genuine submission to the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. And this heart is what moved Hashem to forgiveness. So, we can make the connection for today. This same heart gave the sacrifices validity read verse 19 of chapter 51 that same heart that gave the sacrifice of the validity then is the same heart that gives yeshua's sacrifice validity today it's not that yeshua just automatically somehow overrules or overrides uh, what we think in our heart even though yeshua died for all men all men have not availed themselves of yeshua's sacrifice his death did not provide automatic corporate salvation for everyone in the world it is still an individual responsibility for each and every man to surrender himself to yeshua's forgiveness or to yeshua's uh, authority and in that surrender genuine forgiveness is meted out to that individual person so it's a good thing we we praise god and we bless him for sending a son to die for the entire world yes that's what john 3:16 says for god so loved the world that he sent his that he sent his only son to die for us. And in that sacrifice, um, forgiveness has been made available to all men. But what a shame that all men do not turn to this forgiveness. What a shame that everyone in Israel did not either. Did David as of yet know the name of his future descendant, Yeshua? We have no evidence to support that he explicitly knew the name Yeshua. What he did know is that through Moshe. The Torah promised that one day a prophet would arise and that the people were to obey him. You can read Deuteronomy 18:15 through 19 What he did have was a glimpse of the intended function and nature of the Torah, that is to say the goal, and that these temporary sacrifices pointed towards that day when his sins would be forgiven, never again to be brought to Hashem's mind. In fact, if we jump forward to the book of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, we'll see that this is exactly the feature that God was hinting at would take place one day. That God would remember their sins no more. In fact, let's read that verse. Um, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah 31:34 is rendered from the KJV. Quote, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. End quote. And just in case you've forgotten... This is a New Testament feature to forgive their sins and remember them no more. Read Hebrews chapter eight verse twelve, and you'll see that it's a quote from the Book of Jeremiah there, according to the book of hebrews uh, Hebrews, the sacrifices of david's day could cleanse the flesh but not the conscience. That is to say, I understand Hebrews to be teaching that only the eternal blood of a sinless sacrifice, in comparison to the temporal blood or the mortal blood of an animal, only the eternal blood of a sinless sacrifice can regenerate the mind of an individual. By comparison, the blood of bulls and goats. Was temporal. Let's read the verse from Hebrews um, chapter nine here, verses 13 and 14 from the KJV. Quote, "For the, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve?" the living God, Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. Moreover, the writer of Hebrews makes his point explicit in this additional passage taken from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This time I'll render it from the New International Version. Quote, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship For if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Let's continue... The Old Testament saints, as we're learning now, were not really, quote-unquote, saved by a different system than the one in which we rely on today. I've actually heard this purported at some churches. If you ask your average um, churchgoer, and again, I'm not trying to pick on Christians unnecessarily, but rather, since we're doing studies that involve New Testament topics, then church folk, or Christians, as it were, are the natural target of my studies. Because, as it were, I don't find a lot of New Testament studies taking place in synagogue circles, or at yeshivas, or this type of talk is just simply not discussed among Jewish people. So, Christians end up being the target of my studies as I do these... um, commentaries but I'm, I want you to know that I'm not trying to pick on Christians I, I I am a Christian myself but at any rate I've heard people purport that the Old Testament Saints were actually saved by keeping the feasts or the Old Testament Saints were saved by doing the sacrifices or the Old Testament Saints were saved by keeping the commandments. People what kind of nonsense is that? We need to remember that when Yeshua said I am the way the truth and the life and that no man comes to the Father except through me that he was referring to all men. In fact the book of Revelation tells us that he is the, he is the Lamb of God slain from when? From the foundation of the world. That's right. So salvation has always and only been offered through Him. If we are to believe that the Old Testament saints were somehow saved in a different manner in which we were, then what we're really suggesting is that there are two separate ways unto um, righteousness. Are two separate ways unto um, salvation, which is a theory we know cannot be true, based on the statement that Yeshua just gave us. So, what we need to remind ourselves is this the sacrifices performed with a genuine heart of repentance afforded real life forgiveness, but only to the purification of the flesh. However, the temporal blood of the animals in and of themselves and by themselves could not even take away sin. They could um, they could perform a washing, as it were, on the outside, but but that still required a measure of faith. Only the eternal blood of the perfect sacrifice, to which the animals pointed, of course, could purify both flesh and soul. That's the important point that we need to remind ourselves: the people in the Old Testament were not saved by bringing the sacrifices. God's altar worked, people. It really worked. It did not cleanse the conscience, but it certainly cleansed the flesh. So what we're trying to make a point of in my study is that the objective the objective faith of the individual still remained dependent upon God's promised word to come, namely Yeshua himself. Yet his obedience, the obedience of the individual was demonstrated by adherence to explicit Torah commands where sacrifices were concerned. It's just the same as it is today. Our faith is vindicated by our obedience. Yes, that's exactly what James teaches us in the book of James. Faith is vindicated by works. What's more, the salvation of the eternal soul of an individual was always, both then and now, dependent upon a circumcised heart. Okay, and with that, we'll draw um, some conclusions to my commentary. So we are now uh, near the top of page 5, if you're following along with the written notes. Let's start off with the section entitled, Conclusions. In summary then, the sacrificial system was not designed to bring the participant to the goal, namely, a purged conscience and salvation of the individual. Sacrifices were for dealing with sin in the flesh. Only genuine faith in the promised one could move God's heart to reckon to one's account, quote, Righteousness, end quote, as was done for Abraham. Remember, we talked about Abraham in a previous study. God reckoned Abraham's account as righteous in Genesis chapter 15. And in that reckoning as righteousness, as it were, we're saying that Abraham was saved. He became a new creation in. God, and really, it's because Abraham caught a glimpse of the Messiah to come when he was looking at the stars and realizing that it was the Son of God, it was the the ultimate Son of of, of his offspring that would bring about. Um, the promises that God was speaking to him. The Torah that was given to Abraham, and the Torah that was mediated through Moshe, the one that we have in our Bibles today, I'm going to say something that's going to sound rather strange to those of you listening who are Messianic, those of you who are um, Torah... Um, how should I say? Uh, Torah... Uh, Torah mindful or Torah respectful. Um, this is going to sound rather strange, so let me state it and then if I have to clarify it, I will. The Torah is weak. Yes, the Torah has a weakness. And the Torah's weakness is in that it cannot and could not, nor ever will, be able to bring to the goal of salvation the heart of an individual. That's right. The Torah cannot save a person. That's its weakness. Only the Spirit's supernatural work Could and always will be able to do that very thing. Okay? So understand that as we study the Torah, the Torah is a tool, a carefully crafted tool in the hands of the Spirit of God Himself designed to bring about. the awareness of sin, designed to provide forgiveness um, for sin, um, at least uh, according to the animal sacrifice, to provide a measure of of uh, cleansing of the flesh, to point the individual towards the teacher of righteousness described in Galatians um, uh, chapter four. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter three. But the Torah itself is not the goal. The Torah is not the um, the destination of the journey. You can think of an example of where we have uh, passengers who board a train uh, to go from point A to point B. The Torah is like the train, or in some ways it's like the tracks that guide the train down. Uh, the tracks, its its uh, or it's like the uh, tracks that guide the train down the road or down the way, as it were, towards the destination. And the destination is the Messiah. The destination is um, right standing with God, or righteousness in God's eyes, both forensic as well as behavioral. And so the Torah is the tool that gets us to that point. But the Torah is not the um, uh, the final destination. There's only one path to positional righteousness. There's only one way to attain lasting... And genuine salvation. In fact, in his Jewish New Testament commentary, David H. Stern, writing of the um, previously mentioned mistaken notion that there exists two paths to uh, forensic righteousness, he comments on Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And this is a passage that is often quoted, especially verses 4 through 13, by opponents of the Torah who wish to prove their mistaken premise. Let me read this quote from David Stern's commentary. Quote. The righteousness based on the Torah says one thing in verse 5. But in contrast, the righteousness based on faith says something else verses 6 through 8. Okay? That's where they launched they who believe that there's two types of righteousness. This interpretation like the one that makes verse 4 of chapter 10 speak of terminating the law is anti-Semitic even if today it's unintentionally so. David Stern goes on to say that it flows out of the Christian theology that mistakenly minimizes the importance of the Mosaic law. This, in turn, is the fruit of the Church's effort during the 2nd through 6th centuries of the Common Era to eliminate, hide, or finesse the Jewishness of Christianity. And he he makes a note that his readers should read Uh, his Messianic Jewish Manifesto, chapter 3, especially pages 52 through 55. He goes on to conclude in this quote from his commentary that it is crucial, therefore, to insist that verses 6 through 8 of chapter 10 of Romans do not present the righteousness based on faith in Messiah Yeshua As different from the righteousness based on the Torah, but as the same, the same righteousness based on the same trust and leading to the same eternal life, end quote. And I lifted that quote from David Stern's commentary to Romans chapter 10 verses 6 through 8, Jewish New Testament Publications, pages 30, I'm sorry, pages 397 through 398. Um, he actually goes on to explain uh, in the same commentary as I'm looking down in here at my my own notes here. Let me just read another p- quote from his uh, commentary here while I've got it open. Quote, Sha'ul quotes from the Torah in order to show that the righteousness grounded in trusting spoken about in verse 6 is exactly the same as quote, the righteousness grounded in the Torah in quote, as lifted from verse 5. He proves this By showing that the very trust implicit in the Torah quotation of verse 5, as explained in the notes from David Stern, is taught explicitly as well. The Torah itself commands the very trust Shaul is talking about, trust in God and in his Messiah when he comes. David Stern goes on to um, say, Thus, verses 6-8 through sharpen the meaning of verse 5, which is then seen to imply that the person who practices the righteousness grounded in the Torah, will necessarily have the trust in Yeshua the Messiah that we proclaim uh, mentioned in verse 8. That is, he will see that the Torah itself guides him. Toward the goal of trusting in the Messiah Yeshua. uh, A quote from verse 4. Therefore, David Stern concludes, I have rendered it, or David Stern has rendered it, quote, moreover, instead of but. He renders it moreover in the Jewish New Testament so that verses 6 through 8 add to the point already made in verse 5 instead of contrasting with it, end quote. Um, Again, my point is this. If you read Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 5 in your average English Bible, it says the righteousness described in the law says this, blah, 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 blah. But the righteousness which is of faith, starting in verse 5, I'm sorry, verses 1 through 4, and then starting with verse 5, it says, but the righteousness of faith um, says this, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, I say blah, 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 I mean, et 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 cetera, I'm not trying to... um, minimize the Word of God. In fact, let me turn there real quick. Romans chapter 10. Here we are. Yes, the um, turning point is in verse 6. So verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 10 in most English Bibles seems to describe righteousness A, if I could label it. And then when we get to verse 6, most English Bibles opt for the Greek word de and render it but. And in the but, they say, but the righteousness of faith says, and then it goes on to describe faith in Jesus, giving us righteousness B. So we end up with two types of righteousness in the rendering of the translation in most English Bibles. Righteousness A is described in verses 1 through 4. Um, 5 of Romans chapter 10 and then righteousness B is described in verse 6 and following and in the competition of righteousness A and righteousness B righteousness A is seen as Torah righteousness which is seen somehow as temporal And righteousness B is seen as the um, faith in Jesus, which is um, uh, described as permanent. And of course, any Christian reading those two choices would make a choice for righteousness B in my little example here. But what David Stern is simply trying to say is that that's a misunderstanding of the passage. There is no righteousness A and righteousness B, there's only God's righteousness. And the righteousness that's described by Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through. Six and following is one and the same righteousness. Therefore, we get tripped up by one simple uh, simple Greek word, de, d-e, de, rendered but in most English translations, but should correctly be rendered moreover, or and, uh, something like that. So, back to my own commentary. If the question still remains... How did those folks in the Old Testament find salvation? Then I think it can be safely understood now that self-effort and lack of trust was not the way to their salvation. Rather, properly understood, the sacrifices of the Tanakh were meant to be performed out of the righteousness that is grounded in trusting, the very same righteousness that is produced as a result of genuine trusting faithfulness in Hashem and in His Messiah, the very righteousness that we are to display today. Okay? That makes much more sense theologically. Now, we're going to be studying the Torah portions, um, the upcoming portions and the sacrificial system. And we're going to elaborate on the animal sacrifices, especially in the book of Leviticus, uh, with the above understanding that I've just given you in mind. I just wanted to give us this primer, or to give us this this foundational um, uh, beginning, so that as we move into the book of Leviticus, we won't have this misunderstanding. But for now, I want to close this portion with a summarizing quote from the book of Hebrews again, um, so that we can just... Uh, bring this study to a close on that same note all right speaking of the arrangement mentioned in our current parashah uh the uh, sacrifice I'm sorry the uh, the the temple I'm sorry let's try that again the mishkan the mishkan uh the tabernacle i say temple but if you know um later judaism when when temple gets built uh, by Solomon and eventually Herod and such it is in fact patterned after the tabernacle so that's why I keep uh, making that slip and saying temple sometimes but really I mean the tabernacle but what's interesting is I'm going to make this quote from the um, from the book of Hebrews here in a moment when the writer of Hebrews penned his book or his letter the temple was standing and yet if the careful Bible student will go back and notice he uses tabernacle language doesn't he he uses the word tabernacle so let's pull this quote from the book of Hebrews and that will draw my study to a close all right quote by this arrangement speaking of um, the tabernacle service by this arrangement the rule kakodesh showed that so long as the first tent had standing the way into the holiest place was still closed This symbolizes the present age and indicates that the conscience of the person performing the service cannot be brought to the goal by the gifts and the sacrifices he offers, for they involve only food and drink and various ceremonial washings, regulations concerning the outward life imposed until the time for God to reshape the whole structure. But when the Messiah appeared as Kohen Gadol, that is, high priest, of the good things that are happening already, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which is not man-made, that is, it is not of this created world, he entered the holiest place once and for all. And he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus setting people free forever. End quote. That was lifted from the uh, uh, book of Hebrews named Messianic Jews in David Stern's version, chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. And that concludes our study for this week. The closing blessing is as follows Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Lanu Toratemet Olam Tadunai Noten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem without having love for God or man and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh to state it succinctly Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be my name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi the intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.